My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, ashamed, afraid, or just really uncomfortable. Tonight's show is part of an ongoing series about living with life-threatening illness. My guest tonight is Kathy Kidman. Kathy is a social worker and organizational consultant who was diagnosed with ovarian cancer on the day after Christmas, seven years ago. Uh, during chemotherapy and under the influence of steroids, she thought it would be a great idea to take classes in stand-up comedy. She fell in love with comedy and is currently writing a memoir of comedic writing. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Thank Safe you. Space. Thank you. Um, so I want to start with where it started in a way. Christmas has come and gone. And uh, how did you learn that you had ovarian cancer? We uh, got a phone call, my partner and I, uh, to come into the doctor's office. I'd had a laparoscopy for a cyst we were watching, and uh, we'd found the cyst because I thought I had appendicitis, which is a common question I get. How did you know you had ovarian cancer? Nobody ever finds it. Um, so right, It's usually diagnosed so late. Yeah. Yeah. So this was early stage uh, is what we found out. But so we thank all... goodness for the cyst, in other words. Exactly. And, and for the my hypochondria. You know, I think I have appendicitis, must go to the doctor. So um, I... Uh, had that happen and uh, went into the doctors that day thinking, uh, I don't know what I was thinking, um, but I don't know why I thought I was being called in to the doctors in the morning, except the doctors never call and say, we want to see you immediately without it really being something. So uh, she told us, you know, you have ovarian cancer. It's aggressive. It's a, I'd love to tell you, <laughs> she said, um, she said, I'd love to tell you that it's a, a good kind of cancer. And I kept thinking there's a good kind. Uh, right. But uh, it's not. You have a really bad one and, uh, it, and a bad form of ovarian cancer. And, uh, and uh, I've gone ahead and scheduled the surgery for Tuesday. So uh, the day after Christmas that year was a Friday. And the following Tuesday, um, I had a complete surgical hysterectomy and cancer staging. And two weeks later, I was in chemotherapy. And, and in retrospect, do you think it was helpful to be told it was a bad cancer? I mean, what was the impact of that? Um, I, you know, it was accurate. It was accurate. Uh, I can also imagine it was terrifying. Yeah, I think after ovarian cancer, when I started to hear wah, 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 like the Charlie Brown uh, sitcoms, I, I uh, realized it, it was bad. So I, I did appreciate I, uh, this. This particular physician was um, caring and direct and clear. Mm -hmm. I think she pretty much walks on water. So I'm, I'm okay with the. I'm okay with the clarification that yeah, it, it's not good. I see. So she was being really real with you. Is how mm -hmm. it felt. Yeah. So you have surgery within days. You know, then are in chemotherapy within days, effectively. Um, and was it a rough ride on chemo? It was a, a no. It was it a rough ride on. That is a great question. It. I don't think that chemo in is ever not a rough ride. Right. 
So, uh, How rough was the ride? It would be a much better question. Well, a friend of mine called and asked me that. And she said, Kathy, how bad is it? And I said, I wouldn't wish this on George W. Bush, Diane. I just, I wouldn't. Really wish. bad. It was really worse. bad. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Um, so, uh, but, you know, you're just not prepared for it. I mean, nothing prepares you for um, being that sick because it's cumulative. So each treatment cycle gets worse and. Um, How many cycles did you have? I had six cycles every three weeks. So they had a really aggressive treatment. Yeah, it went from uh, January through April, the end of April. And when you say cumulative, was it cumulative in terms of nausea or fatigue, or in what ways was it cumulative? Nausea, fatigue, uh, but also um, cumulative for steroids uh, and that's really, I think, the thing that people don't talk about with chemotherapy. We talk about losing our hair. We talk about nausea. And we talk about vomiting. But in order to make your system, uh, I guess, process, th- this is me not knowing anything medical. Um, so in order to process things more efficiently, you get these steroids. And, uh, and so I was jacked up on steroids for a while and my thinking was distorted and my body bloated and I gained a lot of weight. And, um, so when you say jacked up, were you on steroids for that whole time, January through April or was it also, so it wasn't intermittent the way the chemo was, it was constant. No, no, it was each chemo treatment. Oh, I see. Yeah. But yes, it just sticks with you. Yeah. So here you you are thinking that you're going to lose weight on chemotherapy, but in fact you gained weight. It's the biggest bummer about chemotherapy. I gained 40 pounds. So it's demoralizing. It was totally demoralizing. So you gain weight and you lose your hair. Yeah, I was bald and large. Bald and large. Right, the worst Mm -hmm. combination. So tell me more about steroids. You know, in psychiatry, we think of steroids as causing almost an elevation of mood while you're on them and a depression of mood when you're off them. Was that true to your experience? What was it like? Oh, well, I was, um, because you mentioned I did comedy and uh, I was funnier than I have ever been. And my partner, Ramona, would uh, I would be standing in the kitchen telling her jokes. I wish I could remember them now. But one after the other, and she's crying with tears going down her face. And I can't stop. Late into the night, I'm cracking myself up. And so um, uh, when I finally found this comedy class that I took, I was... <laughs> I I just kept writing and writing and writing because I couldn't, I had to focus my energy somewhere. And I ate. Ramona and I would go all around Portland and she'd get these salads and I'd be eating these huge, rare hamburgers. And one of my friends took me out to lunch. Uh, He's kind of this button down business guy and he shows up to, you know, take me to lunch thinking I'm going to be all sick. And, uh, And I would be sick for a few days after um, chemo, uh, really sick. And, and then I would be hungry and energetic. And, uh, so he shows up at my door. I'm like a bunny. I'm ready to go. He takes me over to, uh, oh, the saltwater grill and we sit down and, and I order this hamburger that was the size of my head. And he said, you have no problem eating, do you? I said, no. 
Not at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Not at all. Had they warned you? I no. mean, did you know to expect this? So did you wonder, like, what's wrong with me that this is happening? I mean, eventually, did you? Oh, well, I asked about it. Yeah. You know, and, and then they would make these, uh, I'd go to the, for my, you know, checkups with the, at the cancer place, and uh, which I was going to call the Cancer Mart because it's where the Kmart used to be. And, oh, yes. Know, we all call right. it that, the Cancer Mart. Yes. Um, so I guess I will, Cancer Mart. And, uh. And the nurse would say, well, you know, you could eat more vegetables or you could walk more or you could, I wanted to smack her, you know, I'm just, I, the idea of Weight Watchers just wasn't happening then. So. No, as if you were going to go through chemo and deprive yourself of food at the same time. Exactly. No, no, it was all about comfort food. It was all about the comfort food. I would <laughs> walk into, um, uh, Either because I would go to some volunteer meetings that I was still doing some volunteering, um, and uh, I'd bring these big containers of cough of iced coffee from uh, Coffee by Design, and those incredible cinnamon rolls from Standard Bakery. And I know I didn't look like someone who was supposed to be going through cancer, you know. Right. Right. Although your hair presumably contributed to that. The baldness was a giveaway. Yeah, so maybe we could talk about hair. Um, how soon did you lose it, and what was that like? I lost it after the first treatment cycle, within the first 10 days. And um, I had been someone who was really over-focused on my hair. And um, it, it's one of those... It's not funny, but it is funny things where, um, I mean, we all get attached to our hair. And, but I had talked to a therapist about it because she said, well, how often do you check your hair? And I said, well, every stop sign, every light, every, I can't function if I have a hair out of place. And she just looked at me and smiled and said, Kathy, your hair dysmorphic. She works with people with body image issues, you know, hair dysmorphic. And I thought, that's hysterical. We could be on the Today Show. A new disorder. A new disorder. And and not four months later, after finally outing myself around how almost debilitating this hair thing was, uh, I lost all my hair. Right. So so it was a huge blow, in other words. It was a huge blow. Yeah. And and, um, did you find yourself checking your baldness constantly, too? I mean, did you find that it stayed with you? Yeah, I did. I uh, there were a couple things. One, uh, I was afraid. I had seen all. Uh, it's embarrassing to admit this. I had seen all those ads on TV for uh, is it St. Luke's Children's Cancer? Or, you know the Saint cancer at St. Jude's, right? And they have these, they have these lovely children who have these pieces of hair over their fore their heads, and the same with some women. A comb just, over they for save, children. Right, they save right. some of the hair. And I think they look like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. And I was so afraid I was going to look like Gollum. My precious, my precious. So I um, I went with Ramona to the Sally's Beauty discount wherever and bought an electric shaver. And I was ruthless. Every time any little hair sprouted up, I made sure I had a really smooth head. And I couldn't do a wig because I was having... Uh, of hot flashes and the, between the chemo and the steroid and the, uh, you know, acute surgical menopause, um, 
Right, you had this sudden removal of your yeah, ovaries. It was not a gradual process. Yeah, so the, uh, the wig would be too hot. Oh, I couldn't sweaty. keep it on my head. I was, uh, the hot flashes I had were every 20 minutes and down my, it just Sweating. dripping, dripping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here you are, a person who's very sensitive to how your head looks and you can't wear a wig and you've lost your hair. Did you dis- did you go out publicly and be bald or did you do scarves? How did you work that out? I did bald. And I had seen someone uh, in Portland, a, a woman I respect, go bald. And so I thought, well, I can do that too. And uh, I tried scarves. And I stood in mirrors. We stood in mirrors in um, Burlington Coat Factory trying all these scarves and trying to tie them on our heads, tying on my head. And it was white girl does bad ethnic. (laughs) I looked so bad. You just couldn't couldn't make it it happen. I couldn't make it happen. I looked better bald. So so now that you have a full head of hair and it's seven years later, how has it affected your relationship with your hair? I care less. It's really nice to to say. In in fact, I made myself shower before I came here. I thought... I don't have to. Nobody can see me. Your hair does look fabulous hey, tonight. Hey, <laughs> you know, you, you talk better on the radio if you have good yeah. hair. Um, so it really started to pale in significance for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and how soon was it that you noticed that? Uh, I think the first time I paid to have it highlighted, and I saw the big check, and I thought, I was paying this all the time, but I'm still paying it. Uh uh-huh but it was sort of like this wake-up call like wow yeah i don't have the same urgency around it anymore no i really don't i uh i put it in clippies and call it a day often this is wmpg my name is dr ann and this is safe space i'm talking to kathy kidman about living with ovarian cancer i want to shift now to um hearing more the story about how you got involved with comedy in the midst of your cancer. It's not the obvious way to cope. <laughs> and uh, tell me the story of how you how you chose it or how it chose you. I had always uh, wanted to write uh, and perform comedy. At least I thought I always wanted to do that. And um, I'd done a lot of work around diversity and inclusion and found ways to talk about race and gender and sexual orientation in ways that people could hear. And in doing so, in, in a lot of my public training, found that I was quite funny or that people were laughing and uh, and that humor seemed to be a great way to share messages. So um, so that was, had, that's was that been in the back of my head. And uh, so I get cancer. I get diagnosed. I start getting sick. I can't work. I was a consultant and um, an independent consultant. And I, I think I just didn't have the energy. And also to ask people to hire a bald-headed consultant who's working on, you know, one-third of ca- capacity is a little difficult. So uh, so I was trying to heal. And, oh, and I'd, <laughs> and my surgery, my scar had burst. I think um, my, one of the things that they don't mention is that sometimes when you get an abdominal surgery, uh, that scar bursts. And so I had this open seeping, it was just hard to think about with this bandage that I was going to be out working. Uh, so I didn't, um, so anyways, had time on my hands. All the time on my hands meant that I had time to watch TV. And uh, how I got through cancer was law and order, 
law and order criminal intent, law and order SVU, <laughs> um, any kind of uh, any kind of show that I could just watch all day long, sci-fi channel. And I also got into the reality TV shows, and it was the first episode of The, the Apprentice, the first season. And this is why I think about steroids a lot, and what they don't tell you is because I became addicted and obsessive about The Apprentice. And I was convinced that I could be on that show. And uh, so anyways, I download the audition uh, the audition stuff, and I am sure that I can get on there, and I check the dates, and I realize I won't be well enough or done with chemo by the audition dates. And I, as I tell you this, I can't even believe that I was thinking I was going to hang out with the Donald, right? <laughs> Crazy. So... But I was doesn't strike me so quite crazy, actually, Kathy. <laughs> okay, you might be really good at it, but go on. So I'm thinking they need a 40-year-old, you know, former social Funny, worker. Funny, smart person. To- yeah, exactly. Mm. You know, they don't have a, a cancer-surviving lesbian on the show. It should be me. So anyway, uh, not going to be on The Apprentice. And I'm uh, driving off to my therapist and uh, all upset about this. And I hear on the radio the... the, um, the uh, advertisement for Portland's Funniest Professional at the Comedy Connection. Uh, you know, do you think you're funny? Do your friends think you're funny? You could be Portland's Funniest Professional. And and I really do think at that moment, I am Portland's Funniest Professional. I can win that contest. That should be me. And so Apprentice Forgotten, I immediately go down to the Comedy Connection and sign up. And uh, And while I'm there signing up, I find this sheet uh, telling me about a workshop for uh, stand-up comedy with Tim Farrell. And that's what I signed up for. And that's what I eventually did was learn how to write comedy with Tim. And I took two sessions with him and performed a few times and have done um, uh, fundraisers, I think. I did Well, I did a few fundraisers for cancer and for some other things as well. And so here you are. You're... you're- Really funny because you're on steroids and you're probably basically a little bit manic. It oh, sounds like, yeah, very manic. Okay, very manic. <laughs> and um, but you're living this very poignant story at the same time. Did you use the poignancy of your experience to be funny? No. You, so you weren't being funny. Comedy? You weren't being funny about ovarian cancer. No. Oh, all this time I've assumed that. No, no, it was too close. I see. Yeah, I, I tried to make sure that I wasn't doing anything that might still have an ick factor to it. You know, and and uh, and when you look sick, and you're talking about being sick, I think I think someone has to be really skilled and also really emotionally healthy enough about it to be detached enough that the audience doesn't get wigged out by it either. And um, and I wasn't I I wasn't that I'm funny. I'm not that funny. So, well, it's interesting because you are that funny now. You know, I've read some of your pieces, and they they really do walk this very fine line between kind of heartbreak and hilarity. And mm-hmm. they're right Thank in you. there, and they're both they're both part of the story. And um, you know, I don't know if that's the benefit of seven years. Um, and you really don't look sick at all now. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but when did you decide that you could be funny about cancer? I'd been keeping notes, and I was funny telling some stories to people about it throughout. And I think that's one of the things that um, one of my uh, coping mechanisms is that even when something's happening, I can see the irony of it. 
So, for example, when my scar burst and um, and this uh, seeping pinkish fluid is pouring out, it is pouring out onto my Life is Good t-shirt that I was wearing, <laughs> you know, wearing almost like, you know, garlic and a cross to protect me. Right, and, <laughs> right, right. And I couldn't believe that my t-shirt was getting, you know, sapped by this fluid and... And I'm looking at the fluid and I'm thinking, this is a very familiar fluid. I, I don't know what it is, but it looks, it's not blood. And so I'm screaming for Ramona to come upstairs and our neighbor arrives. Uh, Who also, heard the screams? No, no, she oh. didn't hear that. She had come through the door at, just to come through the door. And I, and I yelled, come upstairs, come upstairs. And I show her. And she looks at it and she says, oh, my God, it looks like tomato soup. And I said, that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> It looks like tomato soup. And that, you know, that was the end of that comfort food for the next. No kidding. No kidding. So, so right. So you could see the irony even, I mean, you're telling me that you were having Ramona in stitches to the point she was like crying with laughter, even during chemo. Oh, yeah. So when do you feel like you can make other people laugh in a public way, in your kind of comedian way? Well, I tried. That's a great question because I, um, I bombed in my first comedy attempt. Uh, it was um, during class. I was taking the classes, and nobody was laughing. I got up there, and no one laughed. Uh. And and I could see it in their faces. And and I'm thinking, the bald girl isn't funny, and it's killing them. And it started to eat it, you know. Yeah. I, I couldn't wait to sit down. Yeah, yeah, you can't recover done. from that. Right. No. And later when I looked at the tapes with my friend, uh, she just started, we were laughing. She said, Kathy, you were funny. And I said, I know. And we realized that I was so sick that even if I was funny, people couldn't see it because what was on stage was cancer, not me. It was scaring them and making them sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wasn't doing anything about having cancer. I was doing stuff about gender and sexual orientation and race. Mm-hmm. Really light stuff. Yeah, right, exactly. All the good stuff of comedy. Uh-huh. I can imagine that, that your audience just becomes uncomfortable. I, I'm struck, too, you know, in reading your pieces now in the present, again, seven years later, in which you don't seem fragile. You don't seem at risk. Um, I, I'm struck at... Um, in a way, my own feelings, reading your pieces, which are of sort of how clever and funny and quick they seem, so sharp. And I was thinking, wow, there's something intimidating about having to be funny. Mm. And I was curious, and I was thinking, well, I am live also, but it really does feel very different to be, the pressure to be funny. Once you've named yourself as a comedy writer, it's mm-hmm. like, oh my God, now I have to be funny. Do you feel that inside? Do you feel it as an internal pressure? Well, I think... No, because I think I haven't named myself as a comedy writer. Oh, okay. I, uh, I, Sorry, you're no, not a comedy writer. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a comedy writer. Right. Not a comedy writer. I uh, think of myself as someone who can write comedy and who enjoys writing it. But, uh, you know, not all the things I write are funny. I see. So it doesn't define they, your identity. Have, right. It, yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. And... Um, and if I'm not funny, I'm not funny. Uh, I'm still real. And I think that's really what, 
the pieces that I've written that I've uh, published so far um, are as authentic of my experience as the pieces that will eventually show up that aren't quite as humorous. I want to ask you about another authentic subject in Mm. terms of um, the kind of post-high letdown. And, um, you know, wondering about how it felt to you when the steroids were removed and everything Mm. was done. You just come through this absolute whirlwind nightmare. Um, How was it for you afterwards emotionally? I think one of the things that I was not prepared for was post-treatment depression. And, you know, the last treatment at the end of April, every everyone around me was celebrating. You must be so excited. This is, you know, this is great. This is what you've been waiting for. And I was sicker than I've ever been in my life. You know, I was 40 pounds overweight. I still had this un, this scar that wasn't healing. And a visiting nurse visiting me a couple times a week. And um, acne across my head and my face and... Uh, the neuropathy, the steroids mass neuropathy. And so uh, I woke up every morning feeling like a truck had hit me and um, fatigue like I've never had. So I was sicker than I've ever been, and I'm supposed to be celebrating. And I have this, you know, great future that I can't get psyched about because I'm feeling the immediate wreckage of my, you know, physical past. So... um, that was one of the, that that has been the hardest journey, has been back back out of that kind of a depression. And what were some of the milestones of that journey? You know, I think to other people it wouldn't look like I was depressed. Uh, you know, I was doing comedy. Uh, I went to Harvard for a year, um, and I did comedy there. And I went to Dubai with a bunch of women, and just, uh, and I took a job in a, a nice company with great people. and uh, but So you I, looked outwardly like you're on top of your game. Yeah. But inside? Inside, uh, the I hadn't reclaimed my life. I hadn't really reclaimed my life. I'd, pieces of it. And very grateful. It, I don't think anybody can survive. Um, it can be told they have an early stage ovarian cancer, which is unbelievable learn that they're not likely ever to have it again and have the gifts that I've had and not feel grateful and yet I wasn't feeling grateful so that tension has been a a hard hard piece to let go of in the last five years it sounds like you had a standard for yourself I'm supposed to be celebrating but I'm not I'm supposed to be grateful I'm like failing I'm feeling being a, a cancer survivor here. I'm, I'm not feeling anything I'm supposed to be feeling. Right. I, I, the, the, one of the nurses um, said to me, what's, what's going to be your Lance Armstrong moment? Oh. And I, I just looked at her and I said, I, I had my Lance Armstrong moment and then I got cancer. And, you know, because I'd done a lot. I, I hadn't been quiet for the last X number of years. Uh, so... So, so much said, pressure. So now, I'm, now I'm trying comedy. <laughs> Hope that works. So. Yeah. And so when you talk about reclaiming your life, what does that mean for you concretely? I think it means getting up every morning and being excited about 
my world around me and, and joy. You know, being uh, faith and spirituality have been a huge piece of moving me through. And we didn't talk much about that, but that's that's underneath everything. And I write for me. You know, I write because it gives me joy and it lights me up inside. And I want to live that way every day. That sounds so Pollyanna. I can't believe it came out of my mouth, but it's it's the truth. There's no real way to say it. I want it. to live that way every day. Of course you do. So do I. <laughs> um, I we're going to need to stop. Thank you so much for being my guest. You bet. Thank you. Kathy Kidman, if someone wants to read your work, how can they find you? Uh, I've just put up a website, kathykidman.com, and uh, I'll be putting a new piece up every week. And if you want to subscribe, it'll just show up in your inbox. That's the theory anyways. Wonderful. Thank you again for being my guest. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodson for the music and, I mean, for the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. If you want to email me with a suggestion or a comment, please do so at mpg at gmail.com. That's wmpg at gmail.com. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks.